Welcome to the Federal Society Supreme Court Roundup. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. Thank you for joining us by Zoom, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or whatever other, whatever other platform has been invented in the last 24 hours, or for uh, watching on the video recording. I'm very pleased to welcome today two guests to our program. It is my honor to introduce Reginald J. Brown as the new president of the Federalist Society's DC Lawyers Chapter. Reg is well known to many of you as a partner at the DC office of Wilmer Hale, where, among other things, he counsels financial institutions and others about government in investigations. He's represented some of the most high profile financial and other institutions on the federal, state, and international stage. He's the recipient of numerous accolades, most recently being recognized for excellence in the 2020 edition of Chambers USA as being among America's leading lawyers in business. He served in the White House Counsel's Office, the White House Office of Political Affairs, Presidential Personnel Office, and the National Economic Council, among many other prestigious appointments. We're very pleased to welcome him as the new leader of the DC Lawyers Chapter. And Reg, I leave it to you to introduce our speaker, Miguel Estrada. Thanks, Dean. Really appreciate that. Um, I was given uh, three instructions today. Uh, one was to make sure my Federalist Society dues are current. Um, they, they are now, and I'd encourage you all to do the same. Uh, the second was to keep my remarks about Miguel to two or three minutes, and I will do my best uh, on that. And the third was a strange instruction to mute before I flush. I'm not quite sure what that meant, but maybe some of you have an idea. Um, really excited about today's uh, program. The Federalist Society has been doing this for more than 20 years. Uh, began at Tony Chang's uh, restaurant uh, in Chinatown, grew to the, the Mayflower, uh, and uh, this year for the first time, uh, we are, as Bill O'Reilly uh, would say, doing it live. Um, so very uh, excited about uh, everybody joining uh, virtually uh, today. Um, and it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Miguel uh, Estrada. Of course, Miguel needs no uh, introduction to many of you, but his story, uh, dare I say his legend, uh, demands retelling again and again. Miguel came to America from Honduras as a 17-year-old immigrant with limited English skills. In short order, he managed to graduate from Columbia, Phi Beta Kappa, and the Harvard Law School, Magna Cum Laude, where he also served as an editor of the Harvard Law Review. Miguel clerked on the Second Circuit and for Justice Anthony Kennedy, and he served his country as an AUSA in the Southern District of New York and worked for five years as an assistant to the Solicitor General uh, of the United States alongside now Chief Justice John Roberts. He's argued two dozen cases now before for the Supreme Court, dozens more in the courts uh, below. And in 2020, he argued on behalf of Comcast and achieved a nine to zero win for his client. I'm sure Miguel will tell you all the reasons why uh, the vote should have been even higher if it could have been. Um, this was one of five cases argued uh, uh, by Gibson Dunn lawyers this term. I think they also briefed an additional 18 uh, cases, so they were relatively uh, busy. In 2020, Miguel was named Lawyer of the Year in both IP litigation and appellate categories, and he's widely viewed as the man to call for the tough, potentially unwinnable case. He's so good uh, that rumor has it in one matter he achieved an outcome so favorable 
that a client sent his law firm a seven-figure bonus uh, for his work and also offered to send Miguel on an around-the-world trip as a thank you for his services. The managing partner of the firm said they could keep the seven-figure payment, uh, but declined to let Miguel take the free global trip, which was unfortunate in my view because those of us who know Miguel well know that his most inspired thinking often takes place in Paris after a fine meal with a glass of Burgundy and an exquisite uh, cigar. With a record as accomplished as his, you might ask, why isn't Miguel himself on the Supreme Court? And it is more than a fair question. Justice Kagan, who's one of his law school classmates, said in writing to the Senate that he would make a superlative justice, that his great intellect, high accomplishments, and upright character would make him an excellent addition to any federal court. But it was not to be as the New York Times and many so-called progressives blocked his confirmation to the U.S. Court of Appeals to prevent Miguel from possibly later being appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Why? Because he was a principled, conservative, Hispanic lawyer. There's a new term for what happened to Miguel. It's called cancel culture. And I'm proud to say that it has no place in the Federalist Society where all viewpoints, if well-reasoned and backed by argument and data, are welcome. While I don't think any of us will ever forget or excuse what happened to Miguel, he has accepted the miscarriage of justice with characteristic grace and wit, noting that at this point in his life, he would never willingly place himself in any situation in which convention requires that he be civil to Chuck Schumer. The DC chapter of the Federal Society is blessed with an extraordinary number of members with impressive credentials and experience. I'd also be remiss if I did not mention one of them briefly today, uh, that being Noel Francisco, who's just completed a distinguished tenure as Solicitor General of the United States. Noel, I know you're out there listening. Congratulations on your service. Welcome back to the private sector. We look forward to hearing about a number of your cases this term uh, in Miguel's talk. With that, I'm gonna turn the Zoom and the microphone over to my good friend, Miguel, uh, for today's Supreme Court Roundup. Miguel, over to you. Well, thank you, Rich, for uh, that extremely generous introduction. Uh, and thank you uh, all who have tuned in. I can't promise that this will be entertaining because as you all know, the material is what it is. Um, uh, when you come in person and we do this at uh, the Mayflower Hotel in Washington or at the National Press Club, um, there can be some entertaining moments, mostly unintentional on my part. Um, but, you know, uh, thanks to COVID, we have to deal with the limitations of Zoom. Um, COVID actually forced, you know, the court to have um, a very unusual term. Um, many arguments were pushed into the next term, I think 10 10 or 11, um, we had audio arguments for the first time in history. Um, you know, the court did quite well. Um, the public was able to listen in as the arguments were ongoing, which was unusual. Um, uh, we heard uh, Justice Thomas become an active questioner and ask really incisive questions, which was a gift to the nation uh, and to those who like to malign, you know, the justice. Uh, also a great answer to them. We also learned that Justice Sotomayor is not quite the technological whiz that some think. Um, she repeatedly failed to unmute her phone um, and kept saying, I'm sorry, Chief, I did it again. Um, I hear that there is an Instagram uh, movement that is being started, the Free Sonia movement, um, and it goes, oops, I did it again. 
Um, and as Rich also alluded, um, there was also the flush uh, that was heard around the world during the Bar versus the American Association of Political Consultants argument. Um, while the advocate was engaging uh, Justice Kagan um, in a fine point of law, uh, there was the distinctive uh, sound of a toilet flushing heard. Um, Slate magazine did an extensive analysis, um, examined every clue available and concluded uh, that the culprit was one of the justices, which um, for the sake of decorum, I will not name, um, though I have to say that there were any number of people who practiced in front of the court who had concluded that that justice was, you know, the culprit within three seconds of the occurrence. Um, and uh, we'll move uh, from that uh, now to something that we do when we do this in person. I'm not sure that it's worth doing now. When we do this in person, um, we have this uh, exordium, this thing that we do at the beginning, where we try to award a prize, because this is Washington, um, many of you may not be in Washington, to the individual who exemplifies egregious hypocrisy, crass dealing, and dishonorable behavior. This is usually difficult because this is Washington, um, but we usually have candidates. I think Senator Feinstein has won several years running now because she's just such a target rich environment. She's a candidate again this year. Uh, not long ago, she was out on television flagging for the red Chinese. Uh, you have tone deaf, you have to really be tone deaf to be doing that. Um, then there was this uh, uh, woman by the name of Katie O'Connor, who's from an outfit called Demand Justice. Her contribution was to demand an investigation of Judge Griffith from the DC Circuit for the effrontery of trying to retire during an an election year and given an appointing uh, an appointment an appointment to President Trump, um, the Chief Justice had to shut that down. There was needless to say no evidence of any impropriety in the fact that the judge took his you know retirement. Um, but but I think it would be hard to top uh, you know the collective. Um, conduct of the media and the Democratic Party, if you think that there's a difference in between those two things, um, in dealing with the ongoing conditions of unrest in some of our cities um, and just failing to grapple uh, with what's going on. Uh, you know, my favorite manifestation of that came in an ABC News tweet that recently stated as follows, protesters in California set fire to a courthouse, damaged a police station, and assaulted officers after a peaceful demonstration intensified. Um, there is apparently no depredation or criminal behavior that will not be excused or explained by the left or the media as a peaceful demonstration. And that's just shameful um, and tends to indicate on the part of one, a complete inability to report truth, uh, and on the part of the other, a complete inability to govern. Um, and it's hard to pick one or the other as the most worthy you know, recipient for the prize. So we'll just call it a tie. Um, turning to um, the statistics for the term, we can move through them quickly. Because of the conditions for COVID, you know, the court had only 53 signed opinions. It was the lowest number since the Civil War, uh, when the court had, I think, only 41. Um, you, you know, the court, in addition, had five summary, you know, reversals, uh, two PCs issued issued after argument. 
uh, if you count um, the merits cases and the uh, summary reversals, 36 of the uh, court cases were unanimous and about 36%, excuse me, and 22% were decided by one vote. The chief justice was in the majority in 51 out of 53 of these cases. Um, he dissented in two important ones, you know, McGirt, uh, which we will talk about, dealt with whether half of Oklahoma is still a reservation, which is an interesting case, and an interesting jury trial case, Ramos. Uh, Justice Gorsuch um, was a very salient figure in cases dealing with sex discrimination against gay uh, folks under Title VII, Again, the jury trial case and Indian rights. Um, in terms of agreement and disagreement, uh, the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh continue to agree with each other a lot of the time, as, as did Justice Thomas, Justice Alito. Um, and that's not all that surprising. Uh, nor is it all that surprising that Justices Sotomayor and Justice Thomas agree with each other very little. Um, in terms of the circuits, uh, Again, part of the course, the Ninth Circuit got overturned a lot. They had 10 cases up. They were overturned on nine. Um, that's, that's on par with their usual. Um, their, the Fifth Circuit had six cases up and they were overturned in five. The Second Circuit had eight up and they were overturned in six. The Federal Circuit um, is not just wrong, but clearly wrong. They had four cases up and they were overturned in three, nine, zero, eight, one, and seven, two. Uh, makes you think that Congress should deal, uh, should deal with that problem by, by uh, coming up with a specialized court to deal with the cases that they deal with uh, because they clearly don't quite know how to deal with them. Um, anyway, uh, going to the docket because we have a lot to cover and not a lot of time, let's start with the criminal cases. Um, we have a few of them that are salient. Bridgegate, um, which brings us back to the good old days of Chris Christie and, and his merry band of henchmen. Uh, back in 2013, uh, you may have heard there was a lot in the news about how traffic ground to a halt in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Uh, why would you ever want to be in, front in, in Fort Lee, New Jersey? Beats me, but traffic uh, ground to a halt. Turns out that the usual deal was to have a number of dedicated uh, lanes from the George Washington Bridge going into Fort Lee um, in order to get even with the mayor of Fort Lee, not to back uh, Governor Christie for re-election. Certain staffers of the governor decided to alter the traffic patterns and basically cause chaos in Fort Lee. Um, and um, this was apparently quite bad uh, in what Justice Kagan charitably described, quote, as an admirably concise email. One of the staffers put it uh, this way, time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. Um, in order to cover up um, this little uh, vindictive plot, um, you know, the defendants came up with the theory that they were conducting a traffic study um, in order just to see what would happen. Um, there had to be some expenditures for an extra toll the collector and the like. Um, this being 2013, uh, the, the defendants were ultimately charged and convicted by the U.S. attorney, a certain appointee of the Obama administration, and the convictions were affirmed by the Third Circuit. 
Um, the convictions were for mail fraud, uh, excuse me, wire fraud, and fraud from federally funded programs. The Supreme Court, however, in a 9-0 opinion written by Justice Kagan, Kagan overturned the convictions, concluding that the conduct, though perhaps reprehensible, was not a crime because it was not intended to obtain money or property. Bottom line, what had happened here was that the officers had misused the regulatory authority that had been conferred on them by the state, um, but had not had as the object of the scheme to obtain property for themselves. Now, the government argued that this had been a scheme to physically seize the highway lanes. Um, and you know the Supreme Court basically scoffed at the argument, said that this was just the exercise of regulatory authority. Um, the government also argued uh, that, you know, the government had spent money uh, conducting the fake traffic study and on the extra toll collector. But again, the court concluded this was not the object of the conspiracy and merely a byproduct of the exercise of regulatory authority. Um, none of this would have come as a surprise to the government because in an earlier case called Cleveland versus the United States, you know, the court had already held um, that the exercise of regulatory authority of this type was not covered by the mail and wire fraud statutes. And in the Skilling case, of course, you know, the court had also held that violation of workplace rules um, short of bribes uh, and kickbacks are not covered by the honest uh, services statute. Um, so the case was 9-0. Um, and as they say in Chicago, the musical, you know, the government had it coming. Um, no surprise to anyone. Our next case in the criminal docket deals with the uh, constitutional implications of the insanity defense, um, and it comes out of the state of Kansas. It's called Color, Color versus Kansas, K-A-H-L-E-R. Um, now, insanity, of course, was a defense of common law. Um, even going back to Blackstone, uh, the common law sort of accepted that, quote-unquote, lunatics were not liable for criminal conduct. Um, many of you may recall uh, that in law school, we all learned about the McNaughton rule. Um, in 1843, in an English case, this was after independence, obviously, um, someone uh, tried to shoot the English prime minister, Robert Peel. He actually killed somebody else, and he ended up getting off by reason of insanity. Um, the English courts conducted a hard look at what they defense of insanity um, uh, took. And as a result of that, we've got the McNaughton rule, which basically has two parts in the conjunctive. Um, you know, the first one asks uh, if, the, if the person, by reason of a disease of the mind, did not know the nature and quality of his acts, or if he did not know it, whether he did not know that what he was doing was wrong. Now, the first part is you didn't know the nature and quality of, of, of what you were doing. Um, you blew the guy's head, but you thought it was a watermelon. Um, this is called a cognitive incapacity test. Make, you know, the, this is the Joe Biden branch of the test. You really have no idea who you are, where you are, whether the guy is uh, your brother, your wife, or your sister. Um, the second branch is you don't know right from wrong, even if you do know that the guy is your brother. Um, 
before you think that's the Chuck Schumer branch of the test, that would be wrong. Uh, it is not that you don't, uh, it is that you don't know right from wrong, not that you like wrong better than right. Um, and so only if you don't know right from wrong, uh, do you get off onto the second prong. Anyway, in the 20th century, you also had uh, other tests such like as the irresistible impulse, um, so that even if you were not crazy or insane under the McNaughton rules, you just couldn't help yourself because you were possessed by an irresistible impulse to do what you ultimately did. Um, none of this in principle has anything to do with the constitution, but that doesn't mean that criminal defendants cannot try. As early as 1952, in a case called Leland versus Oregon, somebody went to the Supreme Court and argued that the due process clause required the state of Oregon to recognize irresistible impulse as required by due process uh, 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 as a defense uh, to a crime. The Supreme Court basically said, no, uh, the state of Oregon doesn't have to recognize irresistible impulse as a defense uh, of insanity. 2006, Clark versus Arizona, the state had recognized only the second prong of McNaughton, moral incapacity. Uh, uh, so, uh, but not the first prong. So if you could not tell the nature and quality of the acts, but you could tell right from wrong, um, that was what counted for the state of Arizona in an opinion by Justice Souter said, the constitution doesn't require um, the state of Arizona to recognize both prongs, it's okay if they recognize the moral incapacity prong only. So that brings us to this case, which is color. Uh, Kansas has done the flip side of what the state of Arizona had done in Clark. Uh, they recognize the cognitive, the Joe Biden test, uh, but not the moral incapacity test. So in Kansas, uh, the question is, did you realize uh, the nature and quality of your acts. If you didn't, you're insane. Um, but it doesn't matter if you could not recognize right from wrong, you can argue that at sentencing. Um, and the question is whether the constitution requires you that uh, to recognize a defense of insanity based on your inability to tell right from wrong. Uh, in an opinion six to three, Justice Kagan said no, the constitution does not require the state of Kansas um, to accept moral incapacity as an insanity defense. Um, and basically her line of reasoning is that look, we have always accepted that the states have the primary responsibility to define criminal offenses and what the defenses are. There has never been a really firm understanding as to what insanity is. It's an area of the law that keeps evolving with notions of psychiatry. Um, we're not really in a position to tell you um, what the right answer is, and the states have adopted different versions of it. Um, this was characterized by many as a state's abolition of the defense of insanity, uh, because there are those who thought that moral incapacity is really the core of what criminal responsibility is about. Um, in the dissent by Justice Breyer, joined by Justice Ginsburg and Sotomayor, basically took a very spirited view of that. Uh, basically thought that the entire essence of moral responsibility was key to the criminal law. 
and that once you took that away, um, there was nothing that basically entitled the state to, to tag you with criminal uh, responsibility. Uh, but by a vote six to three, the court concluded that the states are not required to give you that as a defense to criminal liability. Our next major criminal case is Ramos versus Louisiana, which deals with jury unanimity. Um, now the question brought to the, uh, to the court, the issue whether the Sixth Amendment requires unanimous juries in state uh, jury trials. Um, it is clear that in federal practice, uh, in criminal cases, jury unanimity is required. But in 1972, in a case called Apodaca versus Oregon, the Supreme Court had split 4-1-4 on the question of whether unanimity is required in state criminal trials. Um, four justices thought that the Sixth Amendment required unanimity. Four justices thought that unanimity was not necessarily required because they applied a functional test. And Justice Powell, who was in the middle, basically thought that the Sixth Amendment did require unanimity, but he was a fan of what something called, uh, something called dual track incorporation. You know, the notion that the Sixth Amendment would not apply necessarily in the same way to the states as it did to the federal government. And because Justice Powell was in the middle, um, the non-unanimous juries were able to be applied by the states since 1972 until now. Um, only two states continue to do that, uh, Louisiana and Oregon. Uh, and in this case, uh, one of those states, Louisiana had convicted Ramos of a stabbing, uh, and Ramos had been uh, found guilty by the jury by a vote of 10 to 2. You know, the question in the case was whether the Apodaca case should be overruled by the court. Um, and that's sort of an interesting question because ultimately there was a dispute in the court as to whether the case needed to be overruled. Um, ultimately, you know, the answer is yes. Apodaca is no longer the law, um, and the majority opinion uh, was won by Justice Gorsuch, uh, joined by Justices Breyer, um, Sotomayor, uh, Ginsburg, uh, and Kavanaugh. Um, the take that Justice Gorsuch took of this was that Apodaca was not really controlling um, because the controlling opinion of Justice Powell had already been rejected by most of the court, which had never accepted the proposition that they could be dual tracking corporation anyway. Um, and in his view, this is not present a stare decisis problem for that reason, but that in any event, uh, and this is what he said, stare decisis isn't supposed to be the art of, quote, methodically ignoring what everybody knows to be true. I'm not sure what that means, other than it sounds good. Um, but in any event, uh, it was good enough for him not to follow it. And he thought that it was pretty clear that in any event, the Sixth Amendment uh, had to be fully incorporated and nobody had any disagreement that if it was fully incorporated, it did require unanimity. Um, so the conviction was overturned. Justice Sotomayor wrote a concurrence um, which was no other purpose, uh, which had no other purpose other than to say in every other line, if you read it correctly, this is no Roe versus Wade, this is no Roe versus Wade, this is no Roe versus Wade. And so, yes, I'm voting to overrule this case, but this is no Roe versus Wade. Um, because 
every time somebody who's left of center on the court votes to overrule a case, there has to be an explanation for, for the day that may come as to how this is really different from Roe versus Wade. Um, and in her view, uh, this was uh, quite a unique case because the laws that allowed for partial verdicts in criminal cases had racist origins. And that's what justified the overruling in this case. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, um, uh, concurred separately in what may be viewed as a partial answer to Justice Sotomayor's, this is now Roe versus Wade, concurrence. Uh, and um, his opinion is a bit of a bookend to that. Uh, and he wrote basically to say that stare decisis does not mean, of course, that the court should never overrule erroneous precedents, and that historically some of the court's most notable and consequential decisions have entailed overruling precedents. Um, no one seriously maintains that the court should never overrule erroneous precedent. Um, and so, uh, you know, the bookend to the Sotomayor, well, this is really unusual, was, well, no, I mean, we, we should do it. And some of our big cases have been overruling uh, uh, big cases. Um, Justice Sotomayor, uh, Justice Thomas, um, concurred uh, to restate his theory that incorporation has to be done through privileges and immunities. Justice Alito filed a dissent joined by the Chief Justice and interestingly enough, Justice Kagan, um, who uh, was sticking for stare decisis, um, all of them were basically complaining that stare decisis got shoddy treatment in the case. Um, and so in the grand scheme of things, um, I don't think anybody gets all that bent out of shape that two states in the union now have to have unanimous uh, verdicts in criminal cases like everybody else, but it was an interesting fight that we have seen every term about the reaches of stare decisis and the justifications that the justices come up um, when they want to depart from precedent. Apart from those three big criminal cases, obviously the court had many others, um, not quite as consequential. We had an interesting case called Sinanen-Smith in which the court unanimously overturned the um, Ninth Circuit in a criminal immigration case because the Ninth Circuit had basically taken over the appeal and appointed Amiki to argue things that the criminal defendant herself had not thought of arguing and on that basis had invalidated a federal statute. Um, obviously, uh, in an opinion by Justice Ginsburg, the Supreme Court told the Ninth Circuit that this was not an appropriate thing for a court to do. Um, if you're a judge, you should stick to judging. Um, and again, Hernandez versus the United States, you know, the court answered the weighty question. If you want to appeal your guideline sentence on the theory that it's too high and that it was unreasonable, you need not have mentioned the talismanic word reasonableness in the district court. And in a case called Bannister versus Davis, the court held that a Rule 59 e motion uh, attached to a first habeas petition um, is not, in fact, a second or subsequent habeas petition under. Adipa. Um, I honestly do not know how the Republic was able to survive for 200 years without the Supreme Court answering these weighty questions. Um, on the death penalty, um, you know, the court got back to the enforcement of the federal death penalty. You may be aware that the current administration um, issued regulations um, to get that started again. Those were upheld by the DC Circuit and the Supreme Court denied cert on those earlier in, in the year. 
that did not keep uh, a federal district court in the District of Columbia in a case called Barr versus Lee to issue an injunction uh, barring four executions on the theory uh, that the lethal injections uh, protocol to be used by the federal government uh, violated the Eighth Amendment. The Supreme Court, by a vote of five to four, vacated that stay um, and pointed out that, among other things, the lethal injection protocol that was to be used by the federal government was identical to the one that the court had already repeatedly upheld. Um, in a second case, Barr versus Perkey, another case in the District of another court in the District of Columbia had entered a stay. Uh, of execution in favor of a 68-year-old inmate who claimed to be suffering for Alzheimer's. Um, he was not, however, running for president. Um, and uh, the court vacated that stay without opinion, also with four justices dissenting. What's interesting in both of these cases is that Justice Breyer and Justice Ginsburg uh, issued opinions in both cases advocating for the court to consider the constitutionality of the death penalty. Um, and it's fairly clear that if there were to be a change in administrations and a departure of one of the right of center justices, um, the likelihood is high uh, that there would be a reconsideration of the constitutionality of the death penalty um, and that the death penalty once the left of center uh, side of the court has the votes could very well be invalidated. Um, touching Briefly, on one important case on federal Indian law, I mentioned this at the beginning, the case of McGird versus uh, Oklahoma. Mr. McGird was uh, convicted of sexual offenses in state court in Oklahoma. Um, he insisted that his conviction was invalid because he should have been tried in federal court. Um, there is a federal statute called the Major, uh, the Indian Major Crimes Act, which says that if you are an Indian, this is the term that the statute uses, and you convicted uh, and you committed your crime in Indian country, which is to say, a reservation. These are these are all statutory crime um, terms. So if you're sensitive to the use of the term Indian instead of Native American, forgive me. Um, if you are an Indian who committed uh, the uh, the offense in Indian country um, under the Major Crimes Act, the crime has to be tried in federal court and not in state court. Um, and the sexual offense at issue was grave enough to be one that should have been tried in federal court if the crime was indeed committed uh, in Indian country, that is to say, a reservation. Um, earlier in a case called Carpenter versus Murphy, um, the 10th Circuit had held that pretty much all of Eastern Oklahoma, including the city of Tulsa, was indeed Indian country. Um, and the court had tried to hear that case last term uh, with Justice uh, Gorsuch recused and basically tied 4-4. This year they took you know, the McCurd case and uh, with Justice Gorsuch um, uh, sitting and concluded in a 5-4 opinion that indeed the 10th Circuit had been correct and that most of eastern Oklahoma is indeed Indian country, including the city of Tulsa. Um, and uh, the, the opinion basically uh, deals with an analysis of treaties that Congress entered into with the Creek Nation uh, beginning in the 1830s. Um, you may recall, you know, the history of the Trail of Tears, um, where the government, and not one of the proudest moments of the history of the country, basically 
displaced a number of uh, Native Americans west um, to take over lands uh, east of the Mississippi and entered into a number of treaties that assured the possession of lands west of the Mississippi to the Creek. Uh, you know, the question was whether those treaties remained in force um, and whether all of that land remained a reservation or whether Congress had disestablished the reservation. And the analysis that Justice Gorsuch goes into is to look individually at several of the actions that Congress took over the course of the 19th century and early in the 20th century, effectively to say, no, that didn't do it. No, that didn't do it. No, that didn't do it. And so when Congress basically had a a policy, for example, of allotment, insisting that lands be individually owned by Native Americans rather than by the tribe collectively, when Congress disestablished tribal courts, when Congress took away any other aspect of autonomy, um, the, the, the analysis that Justice Gorsuch followed was like, no, that did not disestablish the reservation. So that individually, he concluded that none of them had done it, um, and at the end of the road, he concluded that therefore the reservation had never been disestablished and that all of this continued to be Indian country. The Chief Justice, um, joined by Justice Thomas, Alito, and uh, Kavanaugh, disagreed on the bottom line and with the method of analysis. He concluded that the totality of the actions taken by Congress over the course of that period of years showed that you know the reservation, in fact, had been disestablished. Um, as a practical matter, when the case came out, you know, the first news that many people had of it was a tweet by Senator Cruz, um, which uh, basically said that the liberals of the Supreme Court and Justice Gorsuch had just literally given away half of Oklahoma. Manhattan is next, he said. Um, it's not quite. Uh, I don't think anyone in Tulsa is gonna lose his house. You know, the consequences of, of this ruling are fairly important, but mostly for inter-jurisdictional squabbles as between Oklahoma and the tribes, who gets to be tried where for what crimes and who gets to be taxed where for what uh, transactions. But, uh, and those are important things uh, and highly consequential. You know, they may also, you know, require Congress to become involved, but they probably ultimately will be uh, I don't doubt. Uh, anyway, but it's a very important case nonetheless. Um, turning quickly to some of the major civil rights cases, let me begin with Hernandez versus Mesa, a cross, the cross-border shooting Bivens case. Um, Bivens, uh, for those of you who don't recall, is this very interesting uh, animal, which is a darling of the left, it basically involves getting the Supreme Court to give you a lawsuit against federal officials, preferably cops or Republican political appointees, uh, based on the Constitution itself without Congress ever giving you a cause of action. Uh, the Burger Court came up with Gibbons, uh, Bivens in 1971 by a vote of 19, uh, six to three. Um, Bivens held that you could sue the FBI under the Fourth Amendment for breaking into your house. Um, even though Congress had passed Section 1983 to make a similar cause of action available against states, uh, you know, the court think that that didn't matter and it made an analogous cause of action available under the Fourth Amendment itself against federal uh, 
officers. Um, in the course of the 19th century, uh, 70s, uh, Bivens was as popular with the Supreme Court as bell bottoms were with the rest of the population. Um, in 19 79, the court accepted that you could have a cause of action under the Fifth Amendment uh, for sex discrimination in a case called Davis versus Passman. Um, and in 1980, in a case called Carlson versus Green, the court accepted that you could have a cause of action under the Eighth Amendment for mistreatment uh, in jail. But since 1980, uh, Bupkis, basically, the court has put the stop to it. Um, and has continually refused to recognize new business causes of action. Um, it, it has gone even further, and in refusing every invitation to come up with a new Bivens cause of action, it has announced that any expansion of Bivens is disfavored and that courts should not expand the remedy to any new category of defendant, new cause of action, or new context. So in the context of this 40-year consistent refusal to recognize any new cause of action, we get the Hernandez case, which comes to the Supreme Court. Hernandez involved a young teenager um, who was shot by a border agent in the U.S.-Mexican border. Depending on whom you believed, um, he was trying to do something untoward to the agents by running up and down in between the uh, Mexico and the U.S., or if you believe the parents of the young man, he was just uh, playfully going in between the U.S. and Mexico by playing touch, you know, the pole with some of his friends. Um, there was an investigation conducted by the U.S. government. The U.S. government refused to charge the officer, um, and it also refused to extradite the officer to Mexico. Um, the parents of the young man sued uh, then the officer in federal court in the U.S., um, in the first round of the litigation, um, the Fifth Circuit had ruled uh, that there was uh, qualified immunity. The case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court sent it back to the Fifth Circuit for further consideration in light of Sigler versus Abbasi, the last Bivens case, uh, where you may recall some terms ago, the Supreme Court refused to recognize a Bivens cause of action against John Ashcroft. Um, the Fifth Circuit got it back, and Ombank refused to recognize a Bivens cause of action in this case. Um, and once it came back to the Supreme Court this year, by a vote of five to four, in an opinion by Justice Alito, the Supreme Court agreed that there was no Bivens cause of action for this uh, case. Now, the trick here is you have to think about what the level of generality is. I mean, you know, the parents are suing in what purports to be Fourth and Fifth Amendment claims. Uh, Bivens itself was a Fourth Amendment claim, and you could make claim that at a certain level of generality, a claim under the Fourth Amendment has already been recognized. Davis versus Passman was a Fifth Amendment claim, uh, albeit one for sex discrimination, and you can make a argument that a Fifth Amendment claim has already been recognized at a certain level. Um, and the question is whether this is an application of existing claims or whether this is a new claim or a new context. Um, in an opinion for the court, Justice Alito concluded that this was a new claim and a new context, um, and that in addition, there were any number of factors that weren't hesitation given the cross-border sensitivities and the foreign relational issues involved. There was a dissent by Justice Ginsburg taking issue with these questions, uh, joined, of course, by her liberal colleagues. Um, but again, um, as has been the case for the last 
40 years, you know, the court once again said no to a Bivens claim. Uh, interestingly, Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Gorsuch, who wrote a concurring opinion, basically said we should just give up the ghost and overrule Bivens just for good. Um, we have made clear that this is not going anywhere. Um, and now that we have pulled all of its foundations out as being wrong, nothing is left for us but to overrule Bivens. And perhaps that, that will still come. Uh, we have some other statutory cases that I will mention. Um, Rich mentioned uh, you know, the case that I argued. I won't dwell on it. I will simply say that the issue on it, it says Comcast versus NAOM, National American Owned Media. The issue was what the standard of causation is under 42 U.S.C. section 1981. Um, the Ninth Circuit had held that the standard of causation was simply a motivating factor um, based on cases that have held that the standard of causation is but for causation as a general rule. In most civil rights statutes, the Supreme Court held that that is the standard in 1981 as well and overturned, um, overturned the Ninth Circuit 9-0. Um, uh, another more uh, Consequential, interesting, and uh, divided case uh, in the civil rights statutory context, this term was, of course, Bostock, which uh, dealt with the question um, whether sexual orientation and transgender status are protected by Title VII. Um, these were a series of consolidated cases coming from several circuits which raised you know, the question whether the phrase because of sex in Title VII uh, extends protections to discrimination uh, against uh, you know, gay, transgender uh, 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 plaintiffs. Uh, uh, the court in an opinion by Justice Gorsuch, uh, joined by the Chief Justice and the liberal wing, um, concluded that the answer was yes. Um, the course of analysis, analysis uh, can best be described as being largely founded on a literal analysis of the word sex. Um, he basically concluded that when a gay or bisexual or transgender person suffer discrimination, suffers discrimination because of those traits, it is literally because of his or her sex, um, and that although this may not have been a consequence or a result or an application of the statute that may have been intended or anticipated in 1964 by the Congress that enacted Title VII, um, it is an actual application of the language of the statute, and, and therefore uh, it is covered by the statute. Um, Justice Alito um, wrote a, a rather spirited dissent in which uh, he described uh, the majority opinion, and I quote, as a pirate ship uh, that sails under a textualist flag, but actually represents a theory of statutory interpretation that Justice Scalia excoriated, that, that court should update old statutes so that they better reflect the current values of society. Um, and went on to describe the majority's argument, not only arrogant, uh, as not only arrogant, but also wrong. Um, and ultimately uh, concluded that this could not 
uh, be an actual interpretation of Title VII um, because it could not be what Congress actually did in 1964. Justice Kavanaugh uh, wrote a separate opinion that also dissented and accused uh, the majority of amending the law by engaging in literal uh, textualism rather than reading the ordinary meaning of the language. Um, being a sensitive justice and wanting very much to be liked, however, he felt it necessary even in dissent to congratulate the uh, gay and LGBT community on having achieved this victory, um, which is probably a first in a dissent. Uh, hey, I think this is, this is an illegitimate uh, use of the court's authority and it violates separation of powers, but good for you and congratulations. Um, it's unusual. Um, now, Justice Gorsuch uh, said that Nothing in the court's opinion uh, deals with issues that may be raised with respect to segregated bathrooms, locker rooms, dress codes, etc. cetera. Um, and, and I guess it's true enough. We'll see if those issues are raised, how they're dealt with under this opinion. Um, in the meantime, you know, the one thing that is sure is that this was a ruling that very much pleased the business community. Um, 206 and six major corporations filed as amici on the side that prevailed in the case, um, arguing that Title VII protection for sexual orientation would raise consistency and predictability for businesses and help recruiting. Um, and so that was you know, the outcome of that case. Um, we'll turn over now and try to cover some of the First Amendment and religion cases. Um, we'll start with Espinosa versus Montana the Department of Revenue. Uh, and let me start with a little bit of history first. In the 19th century, President Grant proposed a constitutional amendment that would have prohibited direct public aid to religious schools. Um, but the effort never got through Congress. Uh, uh, 38 states, however, ended up adopting constitutional amendments um, that came to be known as Blaine Amendments because of the name of the congressman who tried to spearhead um, the amendment through the Congress. These uh, Blaine Amendments have been uh, in front of the Supreme Court from time to time. Three years ago, in a case called Trinity Lutheran uh, Church versus Comer, the court uh, was faced with Missouri's uh, invocation of the Blaine Amendment, you may recall, it was a case in which, you know, there was a program for resurfacing of school playgrounds. Um, and this particular school had been denied participation in the program because of its religious identity. Um, you know, the court in that case um, uh, basically sided with the school saying that, quote, denying a generally available benefit solely on account of religious identity imposes an impermissible penalty on the free exercise of religion. Um, and so that was Trinity Lutheran, that was three years ago. Um, so fast forward to this case, the Montana legislature has a program of um, aid. The aim is to provide tuition assistance to parents um, who send their children to private schools. Um, there's a tax credit scheme, um, so that if you make 
a donation to certain organizations, um, then those organizations could give you scholarships uh, so you can send your, kill, uh, your kid to a private school. Problem it was when Ms. Espinosa tried to send her kids to a uh, private religious schools, there was an objection based on the state's version of the Bain Amendment, and the Montana courts ended up holding the program unconstitutional and canning the entire program so that neither uh, her nor, nor parents who proposed to send their kids to non-religious schools could take advantage of the program. Um, you know, the Montana uh, courts thought that the solution to, uh, to the problem was to get rid of the entire program. Um, in an opinion by the Chief Justice, joined by the court's conservatives, the court first found uh, that Trinity Lutheran was controlling on the question of discrimination. You could not have the program and exclude the religious schools. Um, on the second aspect of his analysis, he then concluded that the remedy adopted by the Montana court was impermissible under the Supremacy Clause. Um, you could not, as the remedy, uh, basically can the entire program uh, because when confronted with the competing demands of state and federal law, you had to give way to the federal law. And therefore, you had to keep the program and allow the, uh, the child to go to the religious school. Justice Thomas um, concurred, joined by Justice Gorsuch, uh, to restate his view that uh, you know that you know the establishment clause is wrong and that it deals only with an establishment of a state church. I don't know why he felt it necessary to like deal with that question in this case. Um, Justice uh, Alito, who had not you know recovered from losing the jury unanimity case. Um, and or his fight with Justice Sotomayor about the origins of those laws, wrote a concurrence to say that if it was important to take into account, you know, the origins of the law in Apodaca, um, and if she was right that those laws were racist, it was important to keep into account that these Blaine amendments were actually born of anti-Catholic bias, um, and that we should keep that in mind, that he inserted into his opinion a an 1871 cartoon which depicted Catholic priests as crocodiles slithering hungrily toward American children as a public school crumbles in the background. Um, so he keeps grudges, Justice Alito. Um, uh, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Kagan, Justice Breyer, uh, and Justice Sotomayor, each of them uh, dissented and joined each other's, you know, dissents. Um, you know, they took issue with the remedy a lot uh, on the theory that uh, even if the chief were right, uh, getting rid of the entire program basically fixed everything. Um, and they also took issue with the analysis. Um, we went back again in a new case to the, um, to the ministerial exception. Um, you may recall some years ago, the court recognized under the First Amendment a ministerial exception um, so that certain employees of a church cannot sue the church for discrimination if you're a minister, etc. cetera. Um, in a case called uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Beru, you know, the court considered the claims of two plaintiffs who had sued um, 
based on different claims of discrimination. The Ninth Circuit had upheld the claims, had basically concluded that the employees were not literally ministers, uh, and they were teachers in the schools, that they were not particularly important to uh, the teaching of the faith, um, and that they were more like run-of-the-mill employees, that they did not really match um, the factors that the court had considered in Hosanna Tabor, the earlier case. Um, the court uh, disagreed with the Ninth Circuit, so often happens, um, and uh, in an opinion that was 7-2 uh, by Justice Alito, only Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor disagreed. Um, so importantly, Justices Breyer uh, and Kagan joined the opinion um, and basically held uh, that basically, you know, the First Amendment keeps courts from adjudicating uh, these sorts of discrimination claims, um, that it doesn't really matter if you match exactly um, the list that the court used in Hosanna Tabor, nor does it matter whether you strictly have the title of a minister because there are many faiths in which you don't have the title. Um, you could be an imam or, or, or something else. Um, you have to look at what the functions are that the person actually executes and how important they are. In this case, they were teachers, but they're also engaged in prayer and it was part of their job that they communicate, you know, the faith to the students. Um, uh, finally, in the First Amendment area, we have the AID case, which is the Alliance with the Open Society. This is, uh, you know, the second coming of a case that had been uh, uh, in, the, in the court already. Um, there's a law uh, that, you know, requires uh, certain you know recipients of aid to have a policy that expressly opposes prostitution and sex trafficking some years ago the court had concluded that the policy could not be enforced against domestic or organizations consistent with the first amendment um, this case presented you know the question whether the policy can be enforced against the foreign affiliates of the same organizations. The foreign affiliates basically argued um, that it was pretty much you know, the same thing because these, these affiliates would be perceived as extensions of them, um, etc. In an opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, uh, the court disagreed uh, basically on the dual grounds that the First Amendment doesn't apply to foreigners and these entities are literally foreign entities uh, and B, that we have a long-standing principle of corporate separateness and once you have a separate corporate affiliate you have to live with the fact that there's a corporate uh that is a separate corporate affiliate so although the rule could not constitutionally be applied to the u.s affiliates uh it could be applied to the foreign affiliates of the same entities um moving right along we had we we had hoped to have a second amendment case uh new york rifle uh and pistol association versus city of new york um, uh, the Second Circuit had upheld the city of New York's restriction on um, the extent to which you can transport your firearms to firing ranges. Um, the law was fairly, you know, restrictive. You could only basically take it to city-authorized firing ranges, of which there were only a handful. Uh, you could not take them to your second home, etc. Uh, after the Supreme Court granted cert, lo and behold, Mario Cuomo and Comrade 
de Blasio saw the light. Um, and wouldn't you know it, laws were immediately changed to try to moot out the case. Uh, the ploy was successful, um, which tells you that when, uh, when mom and dad are looking, uh, people take their hands out of the cookie jar. Um, and uh, um, so the case ultimately um, was dismissed as moot um, and with a dissent by Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas, um, who ultimately did not agree that this was moot uh, because there were still certain, albeit minor, but live aspects um, of the case that could have been entertained by the court. Um, and uh, the uh, Justice Alito thought that the court should not, quote, permit our docket to be manipulated in this way. And he does have a point there. Um, I mean, uh, this was rather unseemly and it was unfortunate that the court basically succumbed to it. Um, there was an important abortion case in the docket that I think we can cover quickly. June Medical Services versus Russo. Um, the Chief Justice was the headline. Um, uh, you may recall um, some years ago, it's four years ago, uh, in a case called Whole Woman's Hell versus Hellerstedt, the court struck down 5-4, a Texas statute um, that required abortion practitioners to have admitting privileges in a nearby hospital. Um, it's very hard to uh, describe what the law is that applies under the case because it was a long opinion by Dr. Breyer. Um, and if you read the opinion, it basically tells you what the ventilation vents have, have to be and what the corridors have to be and whatnot. Um, I have never felt like less of a lawyer than reading that opinion. I thought it was either a contractor uh, or a nurse. Um, no, it's hard to tell why that case was in the Supreme Court of the United States. But in any event, um, you know, the court was uh, of a mind that the Texas law was unconstitutional. Louisiana, um, thinking that it had the votes to have the case go the other way, uh, passed what was conceitedly a nearly identical law to the Texas law that was invalidated in Hellerstedt um, and uh, went uh, with it. Not surprisingly, uh, abortion providers sued to invalidate the law um, and a federal district court in Louisiana uh, enjoined it. The First Circuit uh, did not agree with the federal district court uh, and let the law go into effect. Now, the question uh, in the case, uh, when the case got to the Supreme Court, was whether the Supreme Court was going to uphold the Louisiana law. Um, and in a five to four decision, the answer was no, the Louisiana law was struck down. Um, now, the vote is, 5-4, I say, it's like 4-1-4. Four, four. Um, the four votes that are still in the court from the Breyer opinion voted to uh, strike down the law. So it was Justice Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, and Justice Breyer in an opinion by Justice Breyer. Um, and basically what Justice Breyer said was 
district court made findings that replicated um, what we found in Hellerstedt, and this case is just like Hellerstedt, the Fifth Circuit disregarded a clearly erroneous rule, um, and it violated Rule 52, so therefore it was wrong. Just as the Chief Justice filed a concurrence, he was in the middle, he did not join the plurality opinion, um, that basically said, I disagreed with Hellerstedt, and I continue to disagree with Hellerstedt, um, but uh, I believe in stare decisis, that like cases should be decided alike, and therefore I vote to strike the law because there's no significant difference between these two cases. And then you had Justices Alito, Gorsuch, Thomas, and Kavanaugh um, dissenting. Um, and they had some questions about, given you know the fact-specific nature of the opinion that Justice Breyer had written in the first place, whether it was really fair to say that there was a rule of law that could be applied from state to state on the basis of the Hellerstedt case. Um, but, you know, it is in fact true that, that it is far too, uh, too difficult to actually say that there's a rule of law. Um, but in any event, uh, the Louisiana law was struck down. Um, let me try to cover, uh, try to raise quickly so that we can make good use of the time um, and go to some of the voting rights cases. Uh, Schiaffalo versus Washington, um, this may have gotten lost in the hoopla of some of the end of term decisions. Um, the issue here is the so-called faceless voter. Um, as you may recall, um, we vote or not, depending on our general level of disgust with the choices that we're presented with in the quadrennial elections. Um, and we think we're voting um, for the choices, uh, you know, a or B, but in fact, we're voting for electors um, that are committed to vote for A or B. Um, and the question in Chefalo versus Washington was if the state of Washington um, was carried by Hillary Clinton, which of course is always carried by the Democrats, um, may an elector in the electoral college then vote for somebody else. And what happened in 2016 was that three electors that were ostensibly committed to vote for Hillary Clinton voted for Colin Powell in the hopes of encouraging electors from other states who were committed to vote for Donald Trump from starting a movement that would elect somebody else other than the president. Um, they did vote for Colin Powell, but the way that they were hoping to start did not materialize. Um, uh, on the other hand, the state of Washington was not amused by the fact that they didn't vote for Hillary uh, and fined them each a thousand bucks. Um, they did not want to pay for um, not having voted. They thought that, that, that the Electoral College was a voting institution that allows them to exercise their own voting discretion and that this was inconsistent with the Constitution. Um, so the question was whether this is so. Um, this came to, to the court with another companion case um, out of the 10th Circuit, um, uh, Colorado Department of State versus BACA, in which the 10th Circuit had actually agreed with that claim and in, in, in which you know, the court also heard argument. Um, in the oral argument in BACA, um, which was only an eight justice court because it turned out that Justice Sotomayor is somehow friends with Pauline Baca, 
go figure. Um, Justice Thomas suddenly surprised everybody by asking counsel for Ms. Baca whether you know the elector was free to vote for Frodo Baggins, the Tolkien character. Um, and this apparently didn't stun the advocate because he basically said, uh-huh. Um, and he said, no, no, no. Justice Thomas said, like, he wants to vote for Frodo, Frodo Baggins because he really likes Frodo Baggins. Um, he said, no, 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 that would not be okay because Frodo Baggins is not a real person. Um, I don't know that I ever met a politician who is a real person. So I don't know how this was actually responsive. Uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, I think, okay. Uh, but in any event, so that was that argument. Uh, so to get back to Shefala versus Washington and Baca, which were argued together, ultimately, Justice Kagan wrote an opinion for the court um, that was pretty much all of the view that this claim didn't fly. Uh, Justice Kagan um, um, had references to Veep and Hamilton and everything else, uh, but her view was Article 2, Section 1 grants the power to appoint electors in such manner as the legislature made direct to the states. And that means that the states can basically make you commit and fine you if you don't vote as you committed. Um, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch concur separately um, to say that the states have this power, but it doesn't necessarily fly, fly from, flow from Article 2. Um, and so that was Chafalo. Baca was basically just decided in a short opinion on the basis of Shafalo. Um, there is a there was a fight over a Wisconsin election um, that went to the court on a state application where a Wisconsin judge had extended the deadline for voting on the primary in April and five to four the court vacated that that may be coming back but right now the appeal is in the Seventh Circuit. Um, you know the court had a number of intellectual property cases. Um, that if you don't have coffee, I will probably bore you to tears if I told you about. I should probably mention the book income case. Uh, generally, um, you cannot, uh, under the Lanham Act, register a generic uh, name like booking. Uh, so the question was, if you uh, tack on a domain name like com, so you make it booking com, whether you can go ahead and register that, uh, or whether it's still generic and the answer is if you tag it on to a generic name it can cease to be generic and you can register it um so I, i'm glad we know that now um we had a case under the hague convention on on abduction um you know which i will just mention briefly um this poor abused woman, Michelle Monaschi, fled Italy with her child. Um, the husband came back from Italy um, and convinced the court in Ohio that he should get the child back. And the question was, where was the habitual residence of the child? She argued that there had to be an agreement you know, between the parents as to where that was. The court said that that was actually not true. Uh, there had to be no agreement, but that was not required by the treaty. Um, you know, Patty versus Republic of Sudan, the other international case we had, um, the court confronted the terrorism exception in the context of the 1998 Al-Qaeda 
chemical bombing of our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Um, under the FSIA, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, uh, usually punitive damages have not been available against foreign uh, sovereigns, even if um, the uh, sovereign immunity had been waived. Uh, in 2008, Congress rearranged the statute and gave a cause of action um, for terrorism activities and in addition made punitive damages available. You know, the question was whether that could be retroactively uh, applied uh, even with respect to acts such as 1998 bombing and the answer was yes. Um, and so that was that. Um, turning to something more meaty, um, we had some important separation of powers case. Um, the CFPB, the Elizabeth Warren um, Agency, uh, has a single director. And in Celia versus uh, CFPB, the Supreme Court finally confronted the question whether this arrangement is constitutional. Um, this is a fascinating debate because uh, it seeks to recast uh, some of the major authorities on separation of powers as to uh, what the general rule is. You know, the answer um, that the court gave was that the arrangement is not constitutional, and the opinion was written by the Chief Justice, joined by the conservative uh, wing. Uh, but the court went on to say, joined by some of the liberals, uh, that uh, the this aspect of it was severable. Um, and so uh, then that you know the problem could be solved by getting rid of the for cause you know restriction and making the director uh, answerable to the president so problem easily solved um justice kagan uh, joined by ginsburg Breyer, and sotomayor filed a really long uh, and scholarly dissent um which was scholarly not only in how long it was and how detailed it was, but also in the fact that she cited herself. Um, she cited her own law review articles, which was at least mildly amusing um, because that would not occur to me. Uh, sort of like people have said, it's like the New York Times when they say some say um, and claim that that's news. Um, but what was interesting about how this was argued um, is that the Chief Justice structured the opinion to argue for a general rule of presidential accountability and to try to cast the unitary executive as a general rule and to say that there are two narrow exceptions, Humphrey's executive and Morrison versus Olson. And this is neither one nor the other, so therefore the president wins. Um, whereas Justice Kagan basically seems to look at the world as, no, everything is more functional. And you're making this rule up uh, and everything is functional. Um, and so it's a fight as to what the background rule is. Uh, and the chief justice basically sets up, you know, the rule designed to, to say the president wins unless it's one or the other. Um, and sets it up to say Humphreys is very narrow um, and Meyer, the earlier case uh, that had been written by Chief Justice Taft, um, is actually the controlling view. Um, it's a significant change on how you look at these questions, because I think if you had asked even Chief Justice Rehnquist when he wrote more 
Morrison versus Olson, a fair-minded reader would have concluded um, that Justice Kagan had a more accurate descriptive view of the case law. That is to say, that it was a lot messier. Um, but also, a fair-minded reader would have concluded that Humphrey's executor was an abomination. Um, and as Justice Scalia said in Morrison versus Olson, um, could not really stand up to the analysis in Meyer um, and uh, wasn't all that very good. Um, and so now we're coming to, like, uh, as Justice Scalia said in Morrison, he who lives with the Ipsit Dixit dies by the Ipsit Dixit. Um, it's, it's an interesting recasting of, you know, the authorities in this area, because if you look at the opinion from the court now, uh, you know, the president gets to control all of the executive branch subordinates, unless you can turn this into a panel of experts like Humphrey's executor or Morrison versus Olson. Um, whereas Justice Kagan and the other dissenters would say no, it's a more functional analysis and you don't actually have to, to do this. You have to consider all these other things. Um, so I think that actually is likely if it continues to be, you know, the view of the court to have significant implications for the distribution of presidential authority um, as it respects uh, 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 administrative agencies. Um, the other important case, uh, which may, again, not turn out to be so important, is the financial oversight board case uh, versus Aurelius investment, which had to do with the Puerto Rico bankruptcy. Um, Congress in 2016 passed a statute under its Article 4 powers um, to come up with a board to basically try to deal with the mess in Puerto Rico, including possibly uh, getting Puerto Rico into bankruptcy and dealing with all of these various agencies. And there was a board um, that deals with all of these issues that was not appointed with the advice and consent of the Senate. Um, and so the question is whether this board that was uh, given life by the statute was subject to the appointments clause. Um, and now, for those of you who don't recall, we got Puerto Rico in 1898 as a result of the Spanish-American War. Uh, Puerto Rico is technically a territory, so it's property of the United States under Article 4 of the Constitution. Um, it's like a building or anything else. Um, and so what the court basically says, in an opinion by Justice Breyer, joined by everybody except Sotomayor and Thomas, is that the Appointments Clause does apply um, to officers that ex that exercise national authority with respect to Puerto Rico. So if you were appointing a territorial governor, you would have to run that by the Senate. Um, but it doesn't necessarily apply to officers that exercise purely local authority. Uh, if you want to appoint a trash collector in Puerto Rico, you don't have to run that through the appointments clause. And in the view of the Supreme Court, um, the board that was appointed to deal with the Puerto Rico mess is really dealing with local matters rather than national authority. So therefore it didn't, although the appointment clause applies to some matters in Puerto Rico, it doesn't apply to these matters. So that was the answer. Um, Justice uh, Thomas 
um, concur, though, uh, faulted the court for not really giving an adequate explanation as to what exactly uh, is local and what isn't. Um, and he would have simply held that pretty much all territorial officers doing duties under Article 4 are just not uh, officers of the United States. Um, Justice Sotomayor um, concurs separately to fault the court for not taking into account, you know, the last 60 years of history in which, um, you know, the, the U.S. Congress has given all this autonomy to Puerto Rico. I'm not sure exactly where that was going. Um, I think her basic point is that Congress since 1950 has given all this autonomy to Puerto Rico and that it was not necessarily then uh uh, able to claim that it was exercising local authority because it had conveyed all that local authority to, to the Puerto Rican government. Um, but it was not altogether clear where he was going with that. Um, going on to the next major case, um, the DACA case, we're almost done. Let me finish quickly. Uh, DACA. Um, so back in 2012, the Obama administration uh, came up with a deferred action for childhood arrivals, um, which basically lets undocumented young adults uh, to stay in the country if they came here as children and protects them from deportation and allows you to keep jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in, you know, the fact that this was done in 2012, which was an election year, is entirely coincidental, I am sure. Um, and um, so that was that. In 2014, a couple of weeks after the Obama administration got completely walloped in the midterm exception, uh, elections, uh, the Obama administration came up with DAPA, um, uh, the same thing for parents of aliens. Um, Texas and 25 other states promptly sued over the second program, DAPA, um, and ultimately got it enjoined in an injunction upheld by the Fifth Circuit, um, and ultimately up affirmed by the Supreme Court 4-4 um, when Justice Scalia um, passed away. Um, and so DACA, DAPA, DAPA gets thrown out by the Fifth Circuit um, and 4-4 affirmed by the Supreme Court. Donald Trump gets elected. Uh, in June 2017, Attorney General Sessions goes to the acting uh, Secretary for Homeland Security Duke and advises her uh, that DACA, the 2012 program, suffered from the same legal infirmities as the DAPA program that had been um, thrown out by the Fifth Circuit and affirmed by the Supreme Court. The next day, she issues a memorandum that basically um, uh, gets, rid, gets rid of DACA. Um, there is, not surprisingly, litigation filed in every blue state in the country. Um, and uh, some uh, months later in, uh, in uh, 2018, Secretary Nielsen issues a new memorandum in response to one of these cases in the District of Columbia, uh, reaffirming the decision and giving additional reasons as to why DACA has to go, DACA Delenda Est. Um, ultimately, to no one's great surprise, uh, district courts in the District of Columbia, the Second Circuit, uh, and the Ninth Circuit all issued nationwide injunctions saying that Trump is evil and that DACA is wonderful and therefore DACA must stay. Uh, 
Um, there is an effort by the administration to go to the Supreme Court and search before judgment in the interim, the Ninth Circuit affirmed one of those cases. So the Supreme Court takes the Ninth Circuit case and the other ones on search before judgment. Um, in an opinion by the Chief Justice, um, the Supreme Court by a vote five to four agrees that the administration was wrong to set aside the DACA program. Why, you might ask? Well, the Chief Justice says, uh, first, the government is wrong to claim that this is unreviewable, which was the first thing that the government tried, um, because uh, this was not merely a withholding of enforcement, but also conferred benefits. Uh, and the part that conferred benefits is always reviewable under the APA. Well, fair enough. Um, then he goes on to say that the Duke memorandum, you know, the thing that got issued the day after Sessions went to the uh, acting secretary, is inadequate under the APA um, because um, she failed to consider doing something less than getting rid of DACA entirely. Of course, you could not have been expected to disagree with the attorney general, he says, on the question of law, whether this was legal or illegal, but she should have realized that the Fifth Circuit had thrown DAPA out only because um, it thought it was uh, unlawful to give the DAPA recipients benefits and that it was consistent with the rationale of the Fifth Circuit to withhold federal benefits and let the immigrants stay. And failure to consider lesser alternatives than the elimination of the entire program uh, rendered her actions suspects under the APA. Um, he also said um, the actions were suspect because she failed to consider the reliance um, interest had been engendered by the program. Now, Secretary Nielsen had considered all of these, you know, reliance uh, uh, interests, but he said that that could not be considered at all in the appeal because this was a post hoc rationalization. Um, that was a little bit rich, actually, because Nielsen had issued um, that opinion as part of a remand in the DC uh, district case. Um, and so it was an explanation that had been actually uh, issued at the request of one of the courts in the litigation. Uh, but he said that that was off limits. Um, and so as a result of that, uh, you know, the, the chief justice basically engaged in a punt that apparently had no other purpose than to get this program to stay on the books past the election. Um, uh, you know, the reasoning is actually pretty thin. Um, I should disclose my firm actually represented the plaintiff, so I'm, I'm very happy we won. Um, the uh, Justice Sotomayor, uh, 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 the chief um, joined by, uh, you know, the liberal members of the court, except for Justice Sotomayor, uh, went on to reject the claim that there was a violation of equal protection based on statements that were assertedly racist and had been made by the president. Um, Justice Sotomayor, however, concurred separately um, to uh, express her view that that was not so and that statements by the president were indeed troubling. Um, there were uh, uh, statements by Justice Thomas Alito and Gorsuch, which, as you can imagine, took the view that this statute, that that this program had not been promulgated in accordance with the APA. So it was a little bit weird to actually claim that the APA had to be complied to get rid of it, and that it was illegal to begin with. So it was a little bit weird to actually keep the government, um, you know, hold the government to keep an illegal program. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh wrote separately to also take issue with the fact that the court would not consider the Nielsen 
memorandum uh, pointing out that in the usual EPA case, you know, the remedy is to send it back to the agency for additional explanation. And there you have the additional explanation. So it's a little, a little bit weird for you not to consider it. Um, uh, next case that we have is another uh, administrative case. It's the Little Sisters of the Poor, the Poor Little Sisters. Um, they have been trying to get a break for almost a decade. Uh, you may recall under the original Obamacare, uh, there was an exception um, that was allowed for certain uh, religious affiliated institutions. Um, ultimately, uh, the exception was available to them only if they complied with certain uh, steps that they considered incompatible with their faith, such as signing a form that would result um, in the payment of certain procedures that they considered contraception um, by their insurer or their administrator. And the question was whether they could get an exemption under the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. Um, those issues were litigated. There was a case called Zubik that went to the Supreme Court that was pending in the Supreme Court when Justice Scalia passed away. The court basically kicked those cases back to the lower courts to try to get the government to reach an accommodation with the sisters. In the meantime, um, uh, the, uh, the, the administration changed and they came up with a new rule. A whole bunch of new states, Pennsylvania and New Jersey brought suit basically saying that the government was required not to give an exception to the sisters. The third circuit agreed in an opinion uh, uh, by Justice Thomas, the Supreme Court overturned the Third Circuit, um, and they said that the statute basically gives broad discretion to the secretary to give this sort of exception, um, and the secretary could consider the possibility that this could violate the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act without actually concluding that it did. Justice Alito would have gone further and held that it did violate the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act so that the sisters could basically have peace. Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor dissented. The last two things I have to um, discuss uh, are the Trump um, uh, subpoena um, cases. There were two of them. Um, one coming out of the, well, several subpoenas were issued uh, by the House of Representatives to Trump, his family, and a number of religious institutions. And a different Subpoena was issued by Cyrus Vance, the uh, district attorney for New York County. Um, the court dealt with them in different ways in two different opinions um, and considered them um, as being bound by different uh, historical lineages. Um, in the subpoenas coming out of the House of Representatives, the court considered that like a traditional separation of powers fight in which um, although the papers involved are private papers of the president, um, it's not necessarily ordinary that a co-equal branch of government gets overly interest in the papers of the president and faulted the lower courts, which had upheld the subpoenas uh, for not having taken into account that the president is a recipient. Um, you know, the court basically accepted that houses of Congress have the ability to investigate in order to inform themselves with respect to potential 
legislation, um, it seemed reasonably clear that the court was a little bit skeptical about the protectual nature of the legislative purposes being articulated by the House committees here, um, and that you know that the breadth of the subpoenas gave them pause. And what the court ended up saying was that it's fine for um, houses of Congress to direct these sorts of subpoenas to a president as part of legislative endeavors, but they have to really sort of give some indication as to why they can't get the information anywhere else to meet that uh, legislative finding and ultimately show that this is narrow enough to meet what they're looking for um, so that you can't go for a fishing expedition claiming that you're thinking of fixing you know, the money laundering laws and therefore I want all of your financial records. And the court was unwilling to actually tolerate that one. With respect to the uh, Vance subpoena coming out of the district attorney's office, you know, the court hark back to the history of subpoenas in criminal cases, federal criminal cases, going back to the Aaron Burr trial. Um, and, and basically, pointed out that presidents have been accepted as being subject to process, subject to permissible, polite accommodations since the beginning of the Republic. And although this was a new flavor of it, um, you know, the court thought that, you know, a, you know, in a criminal case uh, and in a criminal investigation with all of the secrecy assurances of the grand jury, um, you know, the president should be subject to this sort of process as well. Um, if there is an indication of an abusive purpose, um, the court made it clear that the federal courts, you know, remain open to the president if it appears that a state prosecutor is trying to impede uh, his official duties or is trying to use one of these subpoenas purely for harassment, but that in the ordinary course, the president should raise ordinary defenses in the state proceedings, or if he thinks that this is being used for harassment, can always go to federal court and assert the supremacy clause and make a showing that this is intended to interfere with his official duties, but he is not otherwise immune from process. And I think that covers what we did for the, uh, for the term. Um, and I think um, I should stop there and turn it back to uh, Dean or Reg so that we have an opportunity to sort of have some time. Well, thank you, Miguel. A real tour de force. We appreciate all the work that must have gone into that presentation. I, I really appreciate uh, your time and your energies and your insights. Uh, if you're in the audience, if you're on the telephone, you need to push the star button and then nine on your telephone. If you've joined us on the Zoom call, you need to push the raise your hand feature. Uh, and we'll get to as many questions as we can. I don't think we're going to be able to go to four o'clock, but uh, we've got a few minutes left here for questions. Uh, while we wait for people to raise their hands, Miguel, let me ask a, a quick question of you, if I could. You mentioned stare decisis, you mentioned Bivens, um, and uh, the court not really overruling it. I've seen or heard complaints, I suppose, maybe about the court acting too incrementally and not overruling cases, suggesting that cases are outmoded or outdated. Bivens might be one you raised. Uh, Auer might have been one from the last term. Uh, the Lemon Test, uh, the, the religion uh, test, seems to be under attack. Does, does the court move? Um, what does that mean from a litigator's standpoint, if the court is moving incrementally, if that's correct? Uh, and how does that complicate your work as a Supreme Court litigator? Well, I think it depends on the context. I think for the predictability of the law, the Bivens is almost an entity, right? Because the court has basically told you, you have these three things and you cannot increase the level of generality. 
you know, the Ninth Circuit tries every so often, but it doesn't work. Uh, our was effectively overruled. You know, the opinion that Justice Kagan wrote, it's basically uh, an imposition of Chevron criteria on our deference. And she went so hard to rewrite the doctrine in order to save it, um, that its applicability to any specific context is doubtful. Um, you know, getting our deference should be fairly difficult based on how hard she had to do to save it. Um, I mean, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, I think, last term, wrote a concurrence basically saying, well, I think I would overrule this, but after you basically rewrote it, I don't know that it would ever apply. Um, and so there are ways of dealing with troublesome precedent that you would prefer to see go so as to render it practically inapplicable. All right, let's turn to the audience now. We've got three questions pending. Let's check in with our first caller. Um, a reminder to the callers to make these questions rather than statements. Go right ahead, caller. Dean, I think our caller probably needs to unmute. The caller muted. If you muted your own telephone, you need to come off mute. Let's check with our second caller. I don't know if we're having technical difficulties here or not. Go ahead, caller. If you can hear me, um, Ed B, go ahead and ask your question if you could. Yeah, Ed out in Washington State. I have may I may have missed it in the case you spoke to, but any comments to cases that address private property issues and specifically in regards to the application of Endangered Species Act, such as the Weyerhaeuser U.S. Fish and Wildlife back in late 2018. Well, that was last year. Yeah, and how that might how the court might be heading in regards to these types of issues in this current um, current session. Well, uh, it's hard to tell, right? I mean, it depends on the issue. I mean, you know, the court has, has, has turned back some efforts by the government to try to utilize justiciability um, doctrines not to hear um, some of those claims. Um, but, but I think, you know, the court doesn't view them in grows as property or environmental cases necessarily. I think they tend to think of statutory cases as, as statutory cases having to do with the language of the statute involved. Um, I mean, takings property cases, I think are more contentious as property cases, as we saw uh, last year uh, in, in the overruling of Williamson. But with respect to environmental cases, uh, I think, you know, the court goes more on statutory language. Checking with our next caller, initials QH. Okay, can you hear me? We can hear you fine. Go yes. ahead, sir. Okay, good. Uh, there's been a lot of, uh, lot of commentary out there about John Roberts' uh, tendencies in the last... Uh, well, the last number of years uh, with sort of two competing theories, one being that he is interested in protecting the, the institution 
uh, or protecting the court as an institution and another from Jonathan Adler saying that he's he's trying to to create as little disruption as he can. You worked with him all those years ago. Uh, did you, what is your analysis of what he's trying to do? Do you think either of those explanations fit or do you see some sort of other interpretive theory that would explain his, uh, his sort of, Toing and froing and 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 always looking for the narrowest grounds. Uh, yeah. Look, I mean, I th I think it's very difficult for anybody who even knew a judge after he became a judge to sort of see how they have changed since since they put on a robe. I think all you can sort of see is what they write in an opinion, um, and it's sort of a mixed bag. Some of it is understandable, and some of it is more puzzling. Uh, his Obamacare votes, I found inexplicable. Uh, his census uh, votes, I sort of understood. Um, you know, you know the record that the government had had compiled of not being completely sort of strictly truthful in district court was a little bit troublesome. Um, uh, DACA, I mean, you know, uh, I was a little bit surprised by his vote. I mean, I think uh, I don't know that it that it that it's helpful to ascribe a motivation because I don't think that he does any of these things out of a motivation. Um, I mean, I think he may be looking at the case as to how it's going to fit into a particular area of law, and it's just not apparent to me how he thinks it fits. Um, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what he does with the Obamacare case when he comes out, you know, next term, now that the mandate has been, you know, repealed and he upheld it solely on the basis of the mandate. Um, but, um, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that I'm in a position to analyze the why. I can only, I can only see what he does and sort of ask myself whether I can find some sense or not in what he did. Miguel, we're trying to get you out of here at 3.30. Uh, we've got a, a long list of questioners here. Do you want to take another question or you need to move on to your next business? Uh, let's take five more minutes. I, need, okay. I have a court hearing at four that I need to like turn to. Very good. Uh, initials KM. Go right ahead. Again, if you're on a telephone, uh, you need to unmute your own phone if you haven't unmuted. Uh, hi, uh, getting back to the question of Chief Justice John Roberts, is there any reason to believe that Associate Justice John Roberts would vote any differently than Chief Justice John Roberts? Um, meaning yeah. we have sort of an institutional view that maybe he wouldn't be uh, burdened by if he were an Associate Justice. Huh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, he was initially nominated to, to be an associate justice. I don't know about, you know, it's it's hard to know. Uh, I have to believe that he would feel the same sense of responsibility about what the court as an institution is doing. Um, even though he is the chief justice, he still only has one vote. Um, and uh, you know, he's primo inter pares. Um, but it's an interesting question. I mean, that goes back to the question of whether he is 
whether he feels a sense of responsibility for how the court is perceived and a sense to steer cases one way or the other because of that. I think he's voting as he sees the cases, um, not necessarily in terms I understand all, all the time, um, but I have to believe that's true of all of them, even though I don't always agree with all of them or with each of them, um, and that there would ne not necessarily be any difference by the weight of leadership. At the end of the day, the additional responsibilities, at least in principle, are mostly administrative. Miguel, you mentioned uh, at the outset that the chief was in the majority, uh, 51 out of 53 cases. Is mm -hmm. that unusual and is that a way to exercise some control to, of, of a decision and therefore its breadth? Well, yeah, but, but I assume he was in the majority because he agreed. Um, but, you know, he dissented in some significant cases, you know, the Indian uh, McCurt case and the jury unanimity case. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he was also in the majority in some significant 5-4 cases like that. Um, but, uh, you know, you had significant unanimity in a number of cases, but it's true um, that if you want to control uh, the outcome of the cases and who gets, you know, the opinion assignments, which can, we can, which can be important, is better to be the senior person in the majority. And there's no more senior person than the chief justice. Uh, so the, how you assign opinions is important and to whom you assign them is important. Um, some members of the court will write more broadly than others. Uh, and if you are the assigning justice, which you would always be if you're the chief and you're in the majority, um, you can exercise some modest level of control over the scope of the opinion in that way. Very good. Let's take a final question, and then I want to give Reg Brown a chance to weigh in if he'd like to. Um, initials RD, go right ahead. Nope, it says RD is using an older version of, so let's go to John M. Uh, John M, you need to unmute your telephone. Or yes. your, Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you fine. Go ahead. Hi, Miguel. I was just wondering if you'd like to comment quickly about the Supreme Court's refusal to take up any of the cases seeking um, to undo qualified immunity and what, and what you think, um, what your prediction is as to whether you think they'll uh, pick up that, that issue either this term or in sometime in the next term, a few terms. So. Well, this is an interesting story, the sizes problem, right? Uh, you know, the court has been asked to do it, but there is no doctrinal basis on which the court um, would be compelled to do it. Uh, usually cases that come asking the court to overrule a line of precedent usually are able to say, well, this rest on moth eaten basis right now, you have already undermined this aspect of this or this other aspect of this. Um, usually it's not based on a plea that, well, this is not working because somebody got just shot or look at the riots, right? Um, I would think that of all things, uh, if anybody thought this was a policy that ought to be changed, the plea should be made to the other side of the street, to, to Congress. Um, this was a doctrine that the court developed. Uh, actually, it was the Warren Court that came up with it, uh, based on common law antecedents, but can 
easily be changed by statute if Congress thinks it's a good idea to change it or limit it. Uh, it would be difficult for the court to find a good reason to limit it now, even if some members of the court thought it was overused because doctrinally, it's difficult to come up with a hook to limit it. There's nothing in the current doctrine that would say it's unstable or that it's not working. Um, there are instances in which members of the public may be able to argue that it leads to some injustices, which may be true enough, um, but the consideration of whether that's true or not doesn't actually depend on anything that is intrinsically wrong with the doctrine that is something that the court would usually get into. And so what is the court expected to do? It's not like Bivens where you say, you're not applying this, you basically have called all of the reasons that underlie the doctrine senseless, it's time to let it go. Uh, here you are applying it. You summarily reverse courts of appeals who don't apply it all the time. Uh, what would be the justification for going back and saying like, Emily Litella, never mind. Um, it's just not the right venue for somebody to urge a reframing of the doctrine. You should go talk to Congress about it. Very good. Let me turn now to Reg Brown. Reg. Uh, thanks, Dean. Uh, thanks to you, and uh, thanks to you as well, Miguel. Normally, uh, uh, we would have at least given you a rubber chicken lunch uh, for uh, uh, doing this. Um, I think you're going to have to settle for a bottle of wine, which will be headed uh, your way uh, shortly. Hopefully, you'll think that it's a reasonable uh, accommodation. Um, I haven't also seen your cellar, Reg. It would be great. <laughs> great. Um, I'd also like to thank everyone for joining us uh, today to have hundreds of people uh, here on a Zoom in the middle of the afternoon uh, engaged in um, a civil discussion um, uh, is really the hallmark of what the Federalist Society is about. Um, I'm upset about COVID, but actually happy that we're able to demystify the society by putting uh, this out for the world uh, to see. Um, and Miguel, you certainly uh, today uh, did us all proud. So thank you very much for uh, that brilliant tour de force of the court's uh, term. Okay, thank you all. My thanks as well to Miguel Estrada and Reg Brown, but we stand adjourned. Thank you very much, everyone. <laughs>